You're listening to part two of a four-part series on the Callan Schism. In part one, we were introduced to Callan Parish priest, Father Robert O'Keefe, whose Catholic superiors thwarted his attempts to bring French nuns to Callan to teach in a girls' school there. It all took place 150 years ago in a Callan that was struggling with the aftermath of the famine. Joe Kennedy is an historian with Callan Heritage Society. The Callan workhouse had over three and a half thousand people die in it during the famine years and uh, as a consequence the area remained uh, what would I call it kind of disturbed after the famine. There was a very large uh, poor element of people in Callan, a large percentage of the population were without employment and uh, as a consequence there was always a little bit of a class friction there between the ruling people and, and the masses of the people. And there was lots of evictions went on of the smaller tenant farmers. And the uh, Callan Tenants Protection Society then was founded in 1849 by the two Callan curates, Catholic curates, fathers uh, O'Shea and Keefe. And they not alone created an organisation that fought against these injustices but uh, locally, but it became a, a national movement as well and they got very much involved in politics and spoke all over Ireland at the time and the Bishop of Ossery, Dr Walsh, wasn't too happy with this and eventually he transferred the two Callan curates out of Callan to, to the outer limits, I suppose, of the Ossery diocese and it left a lot of anger in the area, residual anger at the fact that they were treated so badly by Bishop Welsh. On the 18th of December 1869, this same Bishop Walsh was issued with a summons to the Queen's Bench from Father Robert O'Keefe, incidentally a cousin of Father Keith of the Tenants League. The disgruntled Father O'Keefe had been frustrated in his attempts to bring French nuns to Callan to set up a school for girls. Now he was alleging that in the ensuing fallout, Bishop Walsh had authorised his curates to call him a liar from the Callan pulpit. It was one of the few occasions in, in Irish history, or indeed in world history, that any parish priest brought his bishop before the civil courts. I mean, it, it was a pretty rare thing, and uh, there was very few examples of it anywhere. So it, you can imagine why it created such a huge international interest. The whole place was agog with the scandal of it all. Colin Barr, author of the book The European Culture Wars in Ireland, The Callan Schools Affair, 1868-81. to This is getting much serious. It's embarrassing. You don't want to have one priest suing another or one priest suing a bishop. And because it's embarrassing, there's a canon law prohibiting it, or a canon prohibiting it. And that's true not just in Ireland, that's across the whole church. What that means, though, is that he has, in canon law terms, committed what was in this very technical, committed an irregularity. Basically, he'd been naughty, and that has consequences. But the issue then becomes there's a civil track he's suing, so that's in the courts, and there's a canon law track, which is being punished for suing. And that becomes a tension that runs right through the story because O'Keefe and people who support him say this is actually intimidation. This man, a citizen, is suing because his character has been defamed, something any of us would have a right to do, to mm. appeal to the civil courts. And this is, he may or may not have been defamed, but he surely has this right to, to uh, defend his character. 
And if he does that, however, he's being given all of these threats. His livelihood is being put at risk. His reputation is being further traduced. And that is construed by many people who have beliefs or fears about the Catholic Church, particularly Protestants in Ireland, who think this is what it is, as a a tyranny, as an aggression, and as a chilling effect, which of course it is. Mm -hmm. It is intended to chill. That's why the rule is there. You're not supposed to go to the civil courts. He has, so there are consequences. And that begins to set up this church-state divide that's so important to the story and why why it becomes something that people pay attention to in London and around the world. As it transpires, Father O'Keefe is unable to prove in court that Bishop Walsh slandered him. It's very complicated. He's not able to prove that Walsh authorized or ordered the curates to do it. Which, by the way, Walsh lied. We know he lied when Walsh said, I didn't order this. We have a letter that survives. He wrote to Cardinal Cullen saying, I ordered them to do this. Needless to say, that letter was not produced in court. His letter, however, was found later in the archives. I wish to inform you that I have instructed the curates to uh, contradict two statements which he made at two public masses, namely that I gave my sanction to his academy, the other that I told him to repair the offices belonging to his house at the expense of his parishioners, neither of which is a fact. So Walsh lied through his teeth. In the absence of adequate proof, Father O'Keefe's attention turns to his curates. That did not, however, excuse the curates for having done it. And so Father O'Keefe's next step is to sue his curate, Father Walsh. Given the authoritarian attitude of the church, it's unsurprising that his superiors wanted rid of him. I, Edward MacDonald, Vicar General of the Diocese of Austria, and vested with the requisite powers, am suspending you, Father O'Keefe, from your office and all its functions and from all the administration in things spiritual. The reason, the slander suit you brought against Bishop Walsh. Edward MacDonald, the Vicar General in Kilkenny, he's not a canon lawyer, he has a few books. He's terrified of O'Keefe, he gets sued as well. He loses a suit later on, in front of Whiteside, I think. Um, So he's moving incredibly carefully. And he knows O'Keefe will fight, so he's trying to do it by the book, the canon law book, not the civil law. Cardinal Cullen can't get involved. He's not the Bishop of Ossery. So what he does is Cullen invites MacDonald up to dinner in Dublin, introduces him to one of his protégés, a man called Lawrence Ford, who happens to be a professor of canon law, and essentially then leaves them together. The clear implication being is that MacDonald and, and Ford should work together, and Cullen can, just has nothing to do with it. Mm. Almost certainly Ford goes to Cullen each time and they work on it together. So Cullen is very much behind everything. But he's keeping his bib clean. Absolutely. Not only just Cullen is, it's Ford. MacDonald promises Ford that anything Ford writes will be put into different handwriting in case O'Keefe or his lawyers identify it and sue Ford. Basically, Dublin is dictating everything. It's coming in the post. This is what you do. McDonald says, oh, wonderful, thank you, and then copies it into his own handwriting. So there's, there's deniability all the way up the chain. The farthest it can get is Ford, and they're trying to conceal even that. Mm. But Cullen's behind it. But despite all their threatening suspension letters, Father O'Keefe remains doggedly ensconced as parish priest of Callan, And he indignantly responds to his suspension. 
You must be very silly indeed to think I would take your word for such an absurd statement. My legal proceedings are at variance with no law, human or divine, and I shall treat as it deserves any attempt at punishment. He just didn't want to hear of it. Well, he wouldn't, not only didn't want to hear it, he literally refused to hear it. At one point, he evaded the bailiffs they paid to serve the suspension. In other times, he simply refused to open the letters uh, and asked later at a different trial, were you not suspended? I have no idea. A letter arrived. I didn't open it. I don't know. Maybe. O'Keefe has found himself pitted against the might of the Catholic Church. He is, however, to find an unexpected ally in the Lord Chief Justice, James Whiteside. James Whiteside. He, he's fun. He is, in many ways, Cullen's Protestant opposite number. He trains as a barrister. He is on the defence team for Daniel O'Connell in the 1840s. He defends William Smith O'Brien after the Young Ireland Revolt. He gets him sent to uh, Tasmania as opposed to hanged for treason. Um, But this is legal work. He is a tremendously successful barrister. He's a member of the Church of Ireland. He's a product of Trinity College. And in the early 1850s, he uh, goes into Parliament as a conservative, first for, I think, Enniskillen in the north, and then for Trinity College, the safest Anglican Protestant seat, or Anglican uh, conservative seat in Ireland. Um, and he becomes a very active conservative. He's a bigot. But he's an interesting one. He goes to Rome, for example, in the late 1840s. He meets Cullen there incidentally, and praises him and praises the Irish college where Cullen was rector for their Irish patriotism. But in Italy, he confirms all of his prejudices. The Pope runs a tyranny. It's all obscuritanism. The confessional is a way of controlling people's minds. The Jesuits are behind everything. It's all a terrible danger and a threat to freedom. And a lot of Protestants at this time conceptualize Roman Catholicism as a threat to what they call civil and religious liberties. And you'll see that phrase turn up over and over again in the worldwide coverage of O'Keefe, civil and religious liberty. And that's essentially code for the Catholics want to suppress your rights. They want to control what you can think, what you can do, what you can say, which, of course, is what they think is happening to O'Keefe. He's been told not to say these things or to even defend himself in court. Judge James Whiteside makes it his duty to expose these dominating and sinister traits of the Catholic Church. He tries to propose various things like inspecting Catholic convents to make sure they're not secretly brothels. Literally every year in Parliament, there was a a British member of Parliament called Charles Newdigate Newdigate, two Newdigates, who uh, literally every year he put forward a convent inspection bill. And he was genuinely concerned. There's the whole era of Maria Monk. Uh, which is a a story of a a supposedly escaped nun from a Montreal convent who went over the wall and said that there were women being held captive there. There were, you know, the priests were coming in. They were having to service men and the convents. And there's a whole series of these escaped nuns, Edith O'Gorman, a few years later. And they're widely believed. And people like Whiteside and Charles Newdigate, Newdigate, believe these things. So they want to be able to see and they want to free these women. Uh, and that's the level of, of just complete disconnect. And, of course, the Catholics look at that and say, well, no, of course they're not brothels. Nobody could believe they were brothels. These people must not believe they're brothels. So, therefore, they're using that as an excuse to discredit us because they can't possibly be sincere in this, in this fear. 
because no, of course they're not. Um, and there's no evidence that Maria Monk may not have been a nun. Um, you know, but uh, there's all these stories. So Whiteside's very much saturated with this. Please give the court your full name. As Lord Chief Justice, he can assign cases and he seeks out any O'Keefe-related cases and puts himself in charge, annoyed by the bullying of the church. Whiteside is furious, and he's not unreasonably furious uh, because of the, what he perceives as the threats coming from Bishop Walsh or his vicar general, a man called Edward MacDonald. Mm. And at this point, it's very unclear if Walsh is doing anything. MacDonald is probably doing the running. A case in point is MacDonald's letter that he sent to O'Keefe the morning of his court case against Curate Walsh. Your case against Father Walsh is a grave offence against the sacred canons, and I hereby command you to withdraw the case of the Reverend Robert O'Keefe against the Reverend John Walsh, under pain of suspension ab officio et beneficio, to be ipso facto incurred the moment your counsel begins to state the case to the court. And Whiteside says, look, you know, this, this man O'Keefe is in my court. He's, he's made, a ch- made a charge. It's witness intimidation, if nothing else. Or it's, it's, you know, it's like a mobster threatening somebody who sued them. And that's, that's how he perceives it. And you can, you can make that case. You can get there. But it also feeds Whiteside's pre-existing paranoia almost. Under Whiteside, O'Keefe wins the case against his curate, Father Walsh. The bishop and the vicar general have already made the decision to remove O'Keefe's curates down to the Augustinian Friary, setting up a spatial divide within the town. Then the diocese writes him another suspension letter, which Father O'Keefe once again ignores. Walsh's suspension, O'Keefe ignores. Mm. Just says, I don't care. I don't, I don't open the letter. At this point, Cullen is realising, I've got to get involved. I can't do cutouts anymore. And Cullen solicits Roman authority. He basically writes to Rome and says, you need to put me in charge. And they do. So he's made an apostolic delegate with responsibility for Robert O'Keefe, which is hitting a, a fly with a, a howitzer, essentially. But it shows how, how seriously they're taking this. And this would have been approved by the Pope. But that gives Cullen. Cullen is thinking in terms of canon law. Because as Archbishop of Dublin, he has no authority. As the apostolic delegate, he has total authority. He has the Pope's authority. The following are a sequence of letters exchanged between the two men during this time. The accounts which have reached me of dissensions and disputes in Callan have afflicted me very much. I am now in a position to attempt to restore peace in the locality and I am determined to make every effort to obtain so desirable a result. I want nothing in the wide world but to be allowed to do my duty to God and man in peace and charity with all mankind. Nevertheless, I have a heavy bill against Dr. Walsh, which I shall certainly insist on being paid by his lordship or somebody else. I set this at £700, and if I do not receive this in full, I will renew the action against the bishop in the event of his recovering his mind. As for Callan, you are right. The parish is in a deplorable state. At the last quarter sessions, there had been 52 cases, nearly all arising from contentions between my supporters and those of the curates. Nothing can explain the disturbed state of your parish but past and present resistance to Episcopal authority. 
In regard to your curates, you should turn the other cheek, like St. Francis de Sales when he had been unjustly slandered. It must be a sore affliction to be forced to spend so much money on the law and live under such stress. It could only be a great relief to you if peace could be secured and Callan could be like other parishes where the people live in peace and where there is no risk of bloody collisions. You ought to make every sacrifice to bring about so desirable a consummation which can be achieved once you give up your suits and make a full and absolute submission to the bishop. He summons O'Keefe to come and see him to explain his case. This doesn't go very well. O'Keefe is no more willing. He's willing to have Cullen exonerate him. He would have accepted Cullen's authority to do that. When it's clear Cullen will not, he denounces Cullen's authority too. And Cullen issues a suspension, which is published. It's put up on walls. You have been suspended from all spiritual jurisdiction and from the administration of sacraments, including hearing confessions and celebrating Mass, until you come to your senses and make a full satisfaction, in our opinion, to the Church. However, O'Keefe carries out as normal, saying Mass, until things come to a head and his cured father Neary makes a comment in the poorhouse book. In my view, poor people ought not to be sent out on Sundays to hear Mass celebrated by a suspended priest in a church where the altar has been turned into a platform for slander and buffoonery. They should be allowed to go to the friary where they would hear the gospel preached and Mass celebrated by unsuspended priests. He essentially says Father O'Keefe is a suspended priest. He cannot be offering religious services because they're invalid and you must dismiss him. And this goes up to the poor law commissioners. Now, there's a process here, and different things happen at different times, but it's all accelerating in the same way, which is essentially, you're not the parish priest, you shouldn't be the chaplain, and you shouldn't be the manager of the national schools, because those three things go together. This triggers a whole cascade of events. The poor law commissioners fire him as chaplain. Money gone. The board of national education fires him as the manager of the national schools. Money gone. But these positions, that is, Father O'Keefe's role as chaplain of the poorhouse and manager of the national schools, are paid by the state. The state believes it should decide who works in state-funded positions. The state doesn't want its decision-making to be influenced by the Catholic Church. Other states across Europe were having similar power struggles. Thomas Kilroy, author of the novel The Big Chapel, which was inspired by O'Keefe and the events in Callan. Although it was a very local story, it reflected a great movement in the 19th century in Europe, where you had this clash between the Catholic Church and the civil authority, particularly on the question of education, and particularly in Germany. And the Germans called it Kulturkampf, which means kind of a cultural conflict or a conflict between different agencies. And the conflict came because this was a period where the church was trying to create a very powerful central authority in the papacy. And prior to that, you had a much looser arrangement in the structure of the church. So it was a very important moment in the history of religion and Catholicism particularly. And this conflict was reflected in this Callan story. 
But it wasn't only Protestant governments that had conflicts with the Catholic Church over education in the 19th century. The same happened in many predominantly Catholic countries. In 1830s, the liberal government in Portugal placed a ban on religious orders. In the 1860s, the government of the new Italian kingdom set about controlling the wealth and the influence of religious orders, especially in education. And in France, from the late 1870s, the new Third Republic embarked on a policy of laicization, uh, taking the control of education out of the hands of the church and putting it under the control of the state. That continued right into the 20th century. Vincent Comerford, former professor of modern history at NUI Maynooth. Now, in Ireland, throughout Cullen's time and afterwards, the state was not attacking the Catholic Church in the way that several continental countries were doing. But the state was refusing in Ireland to give the church the control and the funding that it demanded, and not just at primary level, but in at all levels of education. With Father O'Keefe's suspension as manager of the Callan National Schools, the ears of the state pricked up to further muscle flexing on the part of the Catholic Church, and so the state became set to become involved in the dispute. In the meantime, the people of Callan became further polarised in their support to Father O'Keefe. You have to make a choice now. Because the suspensions, although O'Keefe says, I have no idea if I'm suspended, everybody else knows, the curates have been going around announcing that he has been. And they say to people, you can't go. And there's an interdict is also put on the parish church, which means you can't go. So you're, if you're a Catholic and you believe you have to go to Mass, it's not a valid Mass. You must go to the, to the Augustinians. So everyone in Callan who is Catholic has already been faced with a choice. Some supported Father O'Keefe. Others were against him. The people were divided and there was a schism in Callan between what was called the Reds and Schismatics. During the controversy, the Schismatics were regarded as the people that uh, went against the parish priest. They were in a schism against them. And uh, the Reds is an interesting thing because they, uh, the people that opposed Father O'Keefe generally came from the merchant class and from the bigger farmers and that. They regarded most of his followers being from some of the poorer areas in the town and maintained also that uh, a lot of them came from what was called what they maintained was the red light district of the town <laughs> so they called it they called them the reds <laughs> but they reckon about 80% of the people supported them initially you know in the early days of it and the controversy when it really got into its height Often at events in Callan, where Father O'Keefe would be speaking, there was up to 5,000 people at them, which was a massive amount of people. And, and it happened numerous times. Personally, I'd be, I'd be very much on his side. <laughs> I'll be honest about it, because I thought he was very progressive. And uh, I'm not sure as to what side my family were on, to be honest with you. I have a feeling that my, on my mother's side, that they were for Father O'Keefe and that when my father sighted up the other way. <laughs> That's what I think. One of the ways you'd have an idea of it is you check the parish registers at the time to see if any of them were born around that time as to whether the curates who were against Father O'Keefe baptised them or whether Robert O'Keefe himself did it. 
So I think my family on the Cuddihy side, uh, my mother's side, I'm fairly sure they were on his side because they never contributed any funds against him or anything or anything of that nature either. The split in loyalties spilt out onto the streets and the people of Callan took their frustrations and anger out in violent rows and riots. For example, at the Callan Petty Sessions on the 7th of December, a woman named Margaret Moore summoned a mother and daughter for having assaulted her with their clenched hands because the women held opposite opinions about O'Keefe. The younger woman, an old offender Mary Dundon, got a month with hard labour. Her mother received 14 days imprisonment. There is a sense in which violence, for the sake of violence, in in communities that feel marginalised or excluded or impoverished or all of those things, can be cathartic. Uh, That you can draw a crowd much more quickly than you could in a middle-class suburb. I think that's just a reality. And it certainly would reflect the economic reality of not just of Callan, but the surrounding areas, North Tipperary and, and, and elsewhere. One thing we do see, and this is where things begin to flip, as I said earlier, O'Keefe was a hammer of the Fenians in the 1860s. But Cullen is the great bogeyman for the Fenians. He is a scathing critic of them. He denounces them. He excommunicates them. He arranges for Rome to denounce them in 1870, right in the period this is getting very, very violent. Formal Roman condemnation comes down. So O'Keefe, pivoting, is able to draw on local animosity. And again, we should should be careful with the word Fenians, where many of these people actually sworn members of the Fenian Brotherhood or similar organizations. Some were. But also that can be taken to mean people who are willing to associate themselves with advanced nationalism, who are willing to be violent or or can be motivated by these emotions. Not all of them would be Fenians in some kind of organized way. But O'Keefe can now draw them in because we're, we're putting one in the eye of the cardinal, who's our great enemy. So it becomes, in a sense, Callan becomes nationalized. So even what was the arguments about you know, business and commercial relationships can pivot around and become proxy arguments for national politics. Mm. So there's people being drawn, particularly from North Tipperary, being drawn into Callan. It's very hard to entangle what O'Keefe's support was and the curate's support was. The bishop's party is what it becomes called. And you sometimes see the phrase, the schismatics. And that's actually very problematic because O'Keefe uses that word. Both sides are trying to tag that term on each other. O'Keefe says the friary and the curates and the bishop, Morin, are schismatic, which is weird in the, in, if you think about it. How, does the, how can the bishop be schismatic? Mm-hmm. But O'Keefe's argument is that the parish is central. He says, I am the parish priest these people are resisting parochial authority and therefore they are schismatic. And because the Pope doesn't have any authority, come back to that, uh, to suspend me, nobody has any authority to suspend me, therefore I am not suspended, therefore I can't be schismatic. So he wants to label his opponents schismatics. Conversely, the curates are essentially saying, no, you... Father O'Keefe and your supporters have been suspended. The church has been interdicted. You are schismatic. And it's interesting to see, and you can still see this actually in Callan uh, today when people talk about it, is they say, well, the schismatics, you have to find out who they mean. Do you mean the bishop's party or do you mean O'Keefe? And it doesn't always get thought about what that means. (laughs) 
In his book The Big Chapel, Thomas Kilroy paints a stark and tragic picture of the impact that the split in loyalties had on the people of the town. I mean, one of the, the sources of um, inspiration for the writing of the book was the fact that uh, I discovered here you had a Catholic church in Callan, which wasn't a Roman Catholic church. It was a Callan Catholic church. And this is what schism means, that um, Father Lanigan in the novel is the parish priest and pope of his church. Um, he has a, a church in existence which is no longer part of the Roman Catholic structure. But it's a Catholic, and he believes that it is a Catholic church. And I found that fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I could also see it as being the source of mad anger and rage in people, and that he would be doing this, and the whole attempt to unroof the church was um, an extraordinary example of irrational behaviour, because this was a, a kind of monstrous thing in their midst, you know, that uh, it, it was such a violation of the real church as they saw it. And that, to me, is the kind of madness of uh, sectarian feeling. I think that, that when you have um, sectarianism of any kind, uh, you have a distortion of life. And um, no matter what the nature of the religion may be, you know, you have uh, people deciding that one thing is right and the other thing is wrong, and um, you have this kind of absolutism in the judgment of other people. Again, I don't think it has very much to do with uh, Callan itself and the reality of Callan, or the reality of the people of Callan, uh, because it's an invented thing. But in the invention, it, it comes out of my imagination and the way I imagine you have the development of, of extremism in feeling. And bear in mind that the novel was written at a time when we had our own sectarian uh, conflict in the, in, in the North. And there's no question about it. Uh, I was reflecting on that as I wrote the book. And um, how do you get sectarianism? Where does it come from? And to some extent, the story of the big chapel uh, is an example of this and uh, the distortion of, of values and of uh, things that are worthwhile, the way things are distorted uh, through extremism. They're transformed into something else. They lose the sense of judgment and sense of value. Particularly, they lose the sense of the sacredness of human life. And human life becomes of less value. But I think in something like um, the case of the big chapel, this was a period where you had kind of madness coming into the place on this issue of religion which religion, which version of religion is uh, the right one. And for the people of Callan, this sectarian debate is not going to blow over quickly. Largely because it's just not in Father O'Keefe's personality to give up. 
monomaniacal is the word I would use. He's incredibly, I don't necessarily want to say narcissistic, although there is an element there, but there is a, a incredible focus. He is going to vindicate his authority. He is going to recover his money. And a lot of this is about money. Pretty much at any point had the church been prepared to accept O'Keefe's bill, this would have stopped. Uh, he wanted to give the nuns back their money. He wanted to recoup what he felt he'd lost, and he wanted essentially an apology. But he would have backed away. But he can't or won't or doesn't understand any other variables here, any other motivations here. He is going to keep going until he gets this thing. Tune into part three to hear what happens next. The Skinny on the Schism was presented and produced by Monica Hayes with special thanks to expert contributor Dr. Colin Barr. Acting by Patrick Griffin, Des Manahan, Donald Cadogan, Michael Summers and Jer Cody. It was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.